Hey there, this is part two of a two-part episode. If you haven't listened to part one, I recommend you do. Thanks. I think most of us can remember flipping through dinosaur books as children and finding page after page of dim, drab, olive-colored beasts. Overgrown lizards, essentially. So it's a bit shocking nowadays to open a book and see just how different dinosaurs appear. Some have frilly orange tufts or vibrant yellow skin. Others have shimmering stripes or scarlet mohawks. They look less like giant iguanas than more like reptilian punk rockers. So how did we move so quickly from one view to the other in just one generation? This shift involved the work of many scientists, but the prime mover here was a single person, a paleontologist who, ironically enough, couldn't stand dinosaurs. He was a reluctant revolutionary, but the revolution he started was no less important for that. Hi, I'm Sam Keane, and you're listening to The Disappearing Spoon, a topsy-turvy, sciency history podcast, where footnotes become the real story. Growing up in Denmark, Jakob Vinther raised dozens of pets, turtles, frogs, rabbits, fish, parakeets. He loved observing their behavior and was convinced he should become a biologist someday. Convinced, that is, until a comic book changed his mind. Oh, boy! It involved Mickey Mouse, who decided to fly off to South America one day to hunt down a black orchid, supposedly the rarest flower in the world. The tale fascinated him. And like little kids do, he completely changed his mind about his future. He was determined to take a botany. He started growing orchids himself and visiting botanical gardens to luxuriate in plant life. Except he still loved his pets, and he couldn't bear the thought of not studying them. So for several years, he agonized. Would it be plants or animals? The answer finally came to him one day at summer camp. He and some other campers were walking on the beach near the ocean when he discovered his first fossil. Not only did this thrill him, but after learning a bit more about fossils, he had a revelation. Both plants and animals form fossils. And if he learned the techniques for finding one, he could also find the other. In other words, maybe he didn't have to choose. In paleontology, he could study flora and fauna. From that day forward, he was determined to become a paleontologist. Still, as he got a little older, Venther realized there was one area of paleontology he wanted to avoid. Dinosaurs. The popular view still held that they were big, dumb brutes, and Venther found them kind of dull. Besides, too many people already studied dinosaurs. What more was there to learn? So Venther made a promise to himself. He swore that, no matter what, he'd never work on dinosaurs. Famous last words. After graduating college in Denmark, Vintner entered graduate school at Yale, and his life changed forever one day in the fall of 2006. He was studying a fossilized squid impression from 200 million years ago. Squids shoot ink at predators to hide themselves, and that day Vintner noticed some dark blots near where the squid's ink sac would have been. 
he put the sample under an electron microscope at Yale and examined the blots more closely. He was surprised to see millions of tiny cylinders, like someone had spilled link sausages all over. Other scientists had seen similar structures before and had identified them as fossil bacteria. After animals die, bacteria devour them. And if the animal gets buried and fossilized, sometimes the bacteria get preserved as well. At least that was the story. But Venther suddenly wondered about this theory. Squid ink is black because of a pigment called melanin. Melanin is actually pretty common throughout the animal kingdom, and different versions of melanin produce different colors. On a molecular level, black melanin happens to be shaped like link sausages. And for Venther, it was too much of a coincidence to see these black sausages right where the squid ink would have been. He suspected the shapes weren't fossilized bacteria at all. They were fossilized ink. This was a pretty radical idea. Soft tissues fossilize only rarely. Usually they break down under the immense heat and pressure deep inside the earth. So the survival of something as fragile as ink, especially after 200 million years, seemed unlikely. The possibility nevertheless thrilled him. Ever since he'd found his first fossil by the seashore, he'd been both fascinated and frustrated by fossils. Fascinated that he could learn about creatures millions of years old. Frustrated that he could only guess about certain details, like their color. Imagine not being able to see tiger stripes or toucan feathers, and you can imagine his frustration. But if the squid ink had survived, that changed everything. Again, melanin is common throughout the animal kingdom, in feathers, in skin, even in irises in your eyes. So if melanin survived in squid ink, maybe it could survive in other fossils too. It seemed unlikely, sure. But what if? Determined not to let this opportunity slip away, Venther reached out to a curator back in Denmark and begged for a favor. Venther knew of an exceptionally well-preserved bird fossil there a skull imprint from 55 million years ago. You could see the bird's beak and eye socket and a crest of feathers atop its head. Venther wanted to examine those feather imprints for traces of the link sausage melanin. There was just one thing. The skull imprint was set in a block of limestone the size of a typewriter, and a block that big wouldn't fit into the microscope at Yale. Venther needed something closer to a slice of bread so he begged the curator in Denmark to hack the fossil out. This was a risky thing to do. Fossils are irreplaceable, and hacking one out can do irreparable damage. But the thought of seeing colored fossils was too good to pass up, and the curator relented. Thankfully, the fossil survived the cutting, and Vintner got his bread slice of limestone. And as soon as he slotted it into the microscope, he knew the risk had been worth it. Now, the pictures he saw on the scope were blurrier than he liked. The room at Yale with the microscope happened to sit just 50 yards as the mole digs from an underground train line. The room vibrated as a result and left the pictures looking smudged. But what they showed was unmistakable. Millions upon millions of little black sausages. In fact, the feather sausages were even more convincing than the squid ones. Squid ink is a liquid, and the sausages and the fossilized ink were pointed in all different directions. The feather sausages were different. They all pointed in the same direction, lined up in neat rows. To Vinther, this meant they couldn't be bacteria. 
Why would bacteria all orient themselves like that, like a little microbial chorus line? But in feathers, the microscopic fibers usually do line up in parallel, just like he was seeing. He really was looking at fossilized pigments. Thrilled, Vinther emailed the images to his graduate advisor to tell him the good news. And what was the advisor's response? Eh. The advisor had seen similar structures before, so had lots of people, and they all knew what they were bacteria. The idea of delicate pigments surviving the heat and pressure of the Earth's interior seemed like hogwash. Although disappointed, Vinther pressed his case. It seemed unlikely that the exact same sausage-shaped bacteria would devour both squid ink and bird feathers, especially 150 million years apart. Plus, what about those neat, tidy rows? The advisor conceded that these were good points, but the whole thing still smelled fishy to him. So after some more arguing, he and Vinther did what all good scientists should do whenever they reach an impasse like this. They made a bet. Yale happened to have one of the world's leading ornithologists on staff, who was an expert on feather color in birds. I bet you, Vinther said, that if we show him a picture of these sausages, he will classify them as melanin. Oh, you're on, said the advisor. So they printed out some pictures and marched over to the ornithologist's office. And without telling him what was going on, they thrust a picture at him and asked him what it looked like. What do you see there? I don't know, the ornithologist said. Looks like melanin. Vinther whooped in delight. I told you so. After some more haggling, his advisor finally broke and admitted that Vinther really had found something new. Fossil colors were real. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. So far, we've talked about fossil squids and fossil birds. So how do dinosaurs fit into this picture? Although they are rare, we do have some fossil imprints of dinosaurs' skin and scales. And the same techniques for analyzing melanin with birds and squids work on those. Even more exciting, dinosaurs didn't all have leathery skin. Contrary to what most of us learned as children, and contrary to what early dinosaur artists like Benjamin Hawkins portrayed, many dinosaurs had feathers. As you might know, birds evolved from dinosaurs. So if you enjoy being a pedant, dinosaurs didn't technically go extinct 65 million years ago. At least a few squeaked through the asteroid apocalypse and gave rise to modern birds. And the wild thing is, feathers actually predate birds by a long time. Some spectacular discoveries in the past 20 years prove this, many from remote outcroppings in China. The bones are clearly dinosaurs. But surrounding the bones, like an electric halo, are feathers. Even some iconic species had feathers. Velociraptors did. Sorry, Jurassic Park. And maybe Tyrannosaurus rex did as well. That shouldn't diminish from T. rex's bad assness. It was still an alpha killer. But appearance-wise, it might have looked like a giant chicken. Now, Vinther had vowed long ago never to work on dinosaurs. But dinosaurs are the charismatic megafauna of paleontology, the star species. And soon his colleagues were begging him to analyze dinosaur skins and feathers. 
They just had to know what color they were. So however reluctantly <sighs> Vintner gave in, he would study some dinosaurs. He started by examining modern bird feathers, looking at different types of melanin in them. So far, we've talked only about black, sausage-shaped melanin, but there is another type that's reddish. Under the microscope, reddish melanin looks spherical, like meatballs. Different combinations of sausages and meatballs give different shades of earth tones in modern birds, black and brown and burnt orange. By looking for those same combinations in dino feathers, Vintner and his team could then reconstruct what colors the feathered dinosaurs must have been, too. And since that early work, Vintner and other scientists have expanded the paleo palette from earth tones to fossil blues and fossil reds. In some samples, they found hints of the metallic sheen of peacock feathers. They've even found dinosaur cholesterol, which doesn't affect color, but is just too weird not to mention. Anyway, Vintner essentially fused paleontology with molecular biology, and in doing so, he became the first creature in 65 million years to see dinosaurs as they saw themselves, with stripes, spots, and plumage, decked out in tattooed skins and feathered boas. Just like Dorothy opening the cabin door onto Oz, he opened our minds to the full technicolor history of life on Earth. Seeing dinosaur colors for the first time in history is already pretty darn cool. But the coolest part is that dinosaur color can also provide insight into dinosaur lifestyle and dinosaur behavior. If we look at animals today, we can see some common camouflage patterns. One is called countershading, where animals are darker on top than bottom. This helps them blend into shadows and hide from predators. Some patterns of countershading work better on open grasslands, while others work best in forests. So, based on the shading of dinosaurs, we can suddenly reverse-engineer the ancient environments they must have lived in, based solely on their color patterns. We can also tell when dinosaurs were active. Take the Microraptor, a tiny cousin of the Velociraptor. Microraptors have big, wide eye sockets, and paleontologists always assumed that Microraptors were active at night, since larger eyes could gather more light and provide an advantage. But Microraptor feathers argue otherwise. These feathers had colorful plumage, which makes sense only for daytime creatures. That plumage would have been wasted at night since no one could see it. The big eyes might have been a red herring. But the most startling revelations involve dinosaur sex. The topic of dino sex has always fascinated paleontologists. I mean, how did 100-ton creatures get it on? especially ones with big spikes on their backs and armored tails. You'll poke more than your eye out. Now, we certainly don't know everything here, but based on similarities between dinosaurs and modern creatures, we can hazard a few guesses. Instead of external penises and vaginas, dinosaurs probably had what's called a cloaca. It's a dual-purpose hole between the legs for both reproduction and, well evacuating waste. Appetizingly, the word cloaca comes from the Latin word for sewer. Mm. Just like with modern crocodiles and their cloacas, dinosaurs probably had sex by inching up close, one behind the other, then pushing their cloacas out until they just touched. This is sometimes called a cloacal kiss. There wasn't much passion involved, just a quick exchange of sperm. Wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. 
And beyond that, the best answer we can muster here is the punchline to that old joke. How did big, spiky dinosaurs like Stegosaurus have sex? Very carefully. But of course, sex involves more than just the physical act of intercourse. And here's where we circle back to Jakob Winther's work on feathers. Now, you might have been wondering something this whole time. If T. rex and velociraptors had feathers, could they also fly? Sadly, no. They were too big, and their bones were too dense. Feathers actually evolved a long time before flight did among dinosaurs. So then why did dinosaur feathers evolve in the first place? Perhaps to keep dinosaurs warm. But that doesn't explain why some dinosaurs had such flamboyant feathers. A dull brown feather insulates just as well as a vivid red one. Instead, the vibrant feathers were probably sexual lures. They helped dinosaurs attract mates, just like with tropical birds nowadays. Early artists like Benjamin Hawkins always emphasized the ferocity of dinosaurs. But feather colors proved that dinosaurs also cared about beauty and courtship and even seduction. With dinosaurs, there was definitely... But there was plenty of... As well. This says something neat about evolution, too. Evolution by natural selection emphasizes the usefulness of traits. The thinking is that feathers help birds fly, and therefore that's why they must have evolved. But that's actually backwards in this case. Feathers arose first as ornaments to lure mates, and only later became useful for flight. The beauty came first. Beauty, in other words, can act as a real creative force in nature, pushing evolution forward. As I said last episode, paleontology has always been a blend of art and science. And because of Jakob Winther's work, aesthetics has suddenly become central to the field. As one historian put it, neither science nor art can build a dinosaur single-handedly. We'll always need careful, sober field work and measurements, there's no question. But sometimes you need the aesthetic view of nature, something like the eye of a painter, to fully appreciate all that's going on. To learn more, visit samkeen.com slash podcast. There, you can find more incredible stories from my books, or learn how to book me as a speaker at your school or event. Also, you can ask questions for me to answer on air, or suggest stories for future episodes. Finally, you can learn how to find transcripts, bonus episodes, and signed goodies there by becoming an official supporter. And if you like this podcast, please do your part to keep it alive by becoming a patron through samkeen.com slash podcast. I'm listener supported. Spread the word to others as well, both online and in person. Word of mouth means a lot. Also, subscribe in iTunes, Stitcher, or other places and leave a five-star review. Thanks for listening to The Disappearing Spoon. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland 
Gambling today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C.